Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. All right. Well, we're excited um, this morning. We have our own uh, David Palmer uh, coming uh, here. And, uh, you know, one of the things we've been um, focusing on this year is on Micah 6.8. And part of Micah 6.8 is a call to do justice. And that's, you know, what today's um, Sunday is about. And as I think about, like, what's happening all over the world, I'm, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 9, where Jesus was going around uh, preaching the gospel, and it says that he saw the multitudes and he was filled with compassion. Um, and then, you know, Matthew tells us why Jesus was filled with compassion. He saw people as harassed and helpless. And, and you think about that and you realize that when, when Jesus sees multitude and he, he gets a sense that there are people who are being harassed and helpless, that that actually moved him. It moved Jesus to say, pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into the harvest field. And that's something that we as a church want to pay attention to because it's so easy to move on through life, not looking at the multitudes, you know, and, and just kind of like going from one point A to point B. But Jesus actually pauses. He looks around, he assesses what's going on, and he realizes that because some people are in, in more vulnerable situations especially, that they're more prone to harassment. They're more prone to be taken advantage of. And honestly, when I think about the Ukraine situation, you know, there's a lot of harassment going on. Um, I look at even Russian soldiers who are saying, we don't want to be here. They're being harassed by something more powerful and telling them that you have to fight this war that you don't even want. That's harassment. And so as a church, we want to pay attention to that. And, and I know that sometimes it could feel overwhelming. It could feel like, what can we possibly do? But, but God at times um, gives us a glimpse of what we can do and how we can take part. And that's why we've asked David Palmer to um, join us today. He's actually the um, executive director of Speak Up for the Poor. And he's going to share with us a little bit about the wonderful work that they're doing. And then afterwards, we're going to have a Q&A with um, David and the founder of Speak Up for the Poor. Uh, Troy is here with us. And so as, as David is speaking, you know, think about like some questions you might want to ask afterwards. And so here's David. Thanks. I've got this. I'm good. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Um, yeah, I'm Dave Palmer. It's great to be here and sharing with you all. Um, I think I'm going to use this. Uh, I've been here at LBCF since 2019, early 2019, so just about a year before the pandemic set in. And it's really been a pleasure to be a part of this community, to get to know many of you. And if we haven't met yet, I look forward to that as well. Uh, and it's also a great uh, privilege to be invited to share about Speak Up for the Poor, which is the nonprofit that I work for and that my friend Troy Anderson founded, who's here with us this morning. And we'll hear a little bit from Troy uh, a little bit later as well. Um, I do want to mention Speak Up is not a religious organization, so we work with people from all faith backgrounds. Our work is an expression of justice and mercy and empowerment for girls 
who experience poverty and are vulnerable to exploitation. So I'm going to start with a story about a girl that I'm going to call Shanti. Shanti is not her real name. So when we still tell stories publicly about the girls that we work with, we don't use their real names or show their actual pictures, and that's to protect their identity and respect their privacy. But the story that I'm sharing is true. So Shanti is a girl from an impoverished family in Bangladesh, and her village and community is very traditional. So one proverb from her community says that girls are born for marriage. And that's not really in, in a romantic way. That's in a limiting way. Like all a girl is for is to get married, to please a husband, and produce children, preferably male children. And one day when Shanti was only 13 years old, her father told her that it was time to drop out of school because he had found a husband for her and she would be getting married in the coming week. Now, there's nothing out of the ordinary or surprising about Shanti's father saying this to her at 13 years old. Bangladesh has the highest rate of child marriage for girls under age 15 of any country in the world, so it's very typical for girls of 13 and 14 years old from Shanti's village to be given in marriage. And until recently, Shanti would have had no other option than to become yet another child bride. But what is surprising and out of the ordinary is the way that Shanti responded to her father. She insisted that she was not going to drop out of school, she was not going to get married, and she said to her father, I want to be a teacher. So Shanti was one of the first girls that we knew of who successfully resisted family pressure to do something that up until then, all girls from her village were just expected and assumed to do. So why was Shanti able to do that? She could do that because Speak Up's girls' education program had just recently come to her village, giving Shanti and hundreds of other girls like her another option besides child marriage. Uh, the mission of Speak Up is to create a new reality for girls who are vulnerable to poverty and child marriage and human trafficking. So if we could take just a moment to imagine, what would it be like to be a girl like Shanti, to be 13 or 14 years old and dropped out of school and given in marriage? I have two daughters of my own. Hi, girls. Lily and Emily. They're 15 and 13 years old, and unquestionably not in their best interest to be dropped out of school or given in marriage or having children of their own at this age. But in Bangladesh, this is common, and child marriage is terrible for the girls involved for, for many different reasons. One is child marriage just ends a girl's education, so it deprives girls of the opportunity to continue to develop intellectually, to be in school, um, and really to be anything other than a housewife. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Also, when a girl who's 13 or 14 years old marries an adult man in his 20s or 30s, that creates a very unequal dynamic from the very outset in their marriage. So child marriage reinforces gender inequality. And oftentimes with tragic consequences, uh, girls who marry in childhood are significantly more likely to experience domestic violence than girls who do not. 
Child marriage also results in much higher rates of maternal mortality, infant mortality, and other pregnancy complications. Do you know what the number one cause of death is for girls worldwide, age 15 to 19? Yeah, it, it isn't war, it isn't starvation, it isn't cancer, it isn't AIDS, it isn't auto accidents, it's childbirth. So, so many of the people in the villages in Bangladesh in which we work, they know of a girl under the age of 18 who died while she was giving birth. So, not only does child marriage end girls' dreams and opportunities for the future, in many cases, it literally ends their life. And this is a huge problem affecting millions and millions of girls around the world, and poverty is one of the primary drivers of it. So, for example, if a family is very poor and desperate, they're even more likely to give their daughter in early marriage uh, so that the financial burden or responsibility of providing for her will be transferred over to her husband. So poverty incentivizes uh, early marriage. And that's why in Speak Up we focus on girls' education because education gives girls a path out of poverty and because educated girls have much greater control over their own lives and their own future. So to prevent child marriage, Speak Up runs a girls' education program, or GEP for short, like you see on their binders there. Girls' education program. And the GEP helps girls from impoverished families to stay in school all the way through college graduation to become professionals, and that completely changes uh, their future. The GEP started 10 years ago in 2012. So this is a picture of the first 21 girls in the GEP a decade ago. And then it's grown year after year. Today we have about 1,450 girls and young women from sixth grade through college from about 35 different villages and urban slums in Bangladesh participating in the GEP, just a small fraction of whom are shown uh, in that picture. To enroll their daughters in the GEP, parents uh, make a commitment not to give their daughter in marriage before the legal age of 18 and a commitment to support their daughter's efforts to stay in school. So I already mentioned this proverb from Bangladesh, girls are born for marriage. And that emerges from a culture with a low view of girls and women. And it perpetuates and it reinforces this notion that all a girl is for is to get married and to please a husband and have children and tend to the home. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with marriage and children at an appropriate age. And there's nothing wrong with being a homemaker or a stay-at-home mom either. If that's what a woman chooses to do, that's valuable. That's important. But when that's a girl's only option because of cultural biases and assumptions that relegate girls to an inferior status in society less than boys, less than men, then we feel like something is wrong because girls and boys are born for more than just marriage. Girls are born to learn. They're born to develop their minds, to develop all of their abilities and use those to benefit their families and their communities and make the world a better place. So Speak Up's Girls Education Program takes impoverished girls who otherwise would have been uneducated and would have contributed to these cycles of female poverty and female inequality, and it puts them on a life-changing trajectory by helping them to stay in school. 
So in Bangladesh, school isn't free. Even in the elementary grades, families have to pay for school fees. They have to pay for school uniforms and books and materials and so forth. And you can imagine a, a very impoverished family who's, who's just living on the edge of desperation and struggling to get by. These costs for attending school create a barrier for putting their children and their daughters in school. So the GEP covers those costs and it removes that financial barrier that prevents the poorest girls from being able uh, to be in school. We also provide uh, tutoring and mentoring every day after school. Uh, in all of the villages where we work, we've built these one-room schoolhouses called learning centers, like you see in the background of this photo. And the learning center, it, it's a dedicated space right in the village, close to where these girls live, where the girls can come and they can study, they can receive tutoring and mentoring from our staff, and all of that helps them to thrive and do their best and to stay in school. Um, this is another learning center in another of the villages where we work, and the girls are holding little cards expressing what their dream is, what they, hope to, what they dream of becoming through their education. So the parents of the girls in our program are not necessarily educated themselves. They may not be able to help their daughters academically, especially as they advance on to higher grades, but the tutors and the mentors on our staff team can. We also have uh, regular trainings for the girls uh, in the GEP. And at these trainings, uh, they're doing a variety of things. They're, they're doing skits and dramas and singing songs and performing dances, things that develop their self-confidence and allow them to display their creativity and their talents. They're learning about life skills and professional skills and how to stay safe and healthy. And we also have trainings for adults, for the parents of the girls who are in the GEP, so that their parents will also understand the detrimental consequences of child marriage and have a strong value for keeping their daughters in school. And then we have a dormitory in, the, in Kulna City in Bangladesh. That's a picture of me outside of the dormitory with some of our college students. So this dorm, it's primarily for the young women in college through our GEP, and it provides room and board to them in the city while they're attending their various colleges. We have this dorm because most of the girls and young women live in villages outside of the city, but the colleges are in the city. So this provides room and board, makes it possible for these young women to attend college. The GEP has produced uh, 20 college graduates and nursing school graduates so far. These are people who began in our program as young girls uh, in the past decade, and they've come up through the program. They've finished college or nursing school. You can see a picture of six of the 14 uh, nurses that have come up through the GEP so far. And in all probability, none or very few of these young women would have even finished high school much less graduate from college or nursing school or higher education apart from the GEP. So it's having a, a significant impact in changing the direction of their lives. Uh, we don't have a 100% college graduation rate for all of the girls who join the GEP. That honestly wouldn't be realistic considering the significant challenges that these girls face and that they're up against. Um, there are some cases where even though parents enroll their daughters in the program, uh, they, they still succumb to community pressure, family pressure, and give them in marriage uh, before the age of 18. And we're always sad when that happens, when one of the girls from our program 
is given in marriage. Some girls join the GEP and they stay in it into their high school years, but they don't necessarily go on to college. But we do have a significantly higher, much higher rate of girls attending college and graduating college than otherwise would have been the case uh, without the GEP. So we currently have 125, right? Like right now, we have 125 young women who are studying in college or other higher education through the GEP. And uh, so in the coming years, we're going to have many more graduates, like future nurses. That's what their card says, future nurse. But also teachers, doctors, physicians assistants, police officers, journalists, and more. Um, let me just share a couple of other stories with you of uh, girls and young women in our program. So Brishti is another uh, young woman in our GEP. And before she joined the GEP, she was married at age 15. Shortly after the wedding, her husband began to violently abuse her. So 15-year-old Brishti escaped from her abusive husband. She returned home, and she asked our staff for help. And our staff were able to help her annul her illegal and abusive marriage. They helped her get back into high school, and they got her into the GEP. And today, several years later, Brishti's in nursing school, and she's on the path to becoming one of the first young women from her community to become a nurse. Another young woman in the GEP, I'll call her Asha. And when Asha was 15, she faced a series of huge setbacks. First, her mother died, and then her father quickly remarried and moved to India, and he left Asha in Bangladesh with, uh, with her destitute grandmother. So Asha's grief over the loss of both of her parents affected her studies so much that she failed all of her 10th grade exams. And when that happened, she sank into despair about her future, and she attempted to end her own life um, at 15 years old. And Asha was not in our GEP at that time, uh, but some other girls in her village were. And it just so happened that my friend Troy was visiting her village to meet with uh, some of the girls in the GEP, and they told Troy about Asha. So Asha and these girls, they went to Asha's home, and they found her there in terrible shape. She had she tried to commit suicide, and they got medical help for her. They helped her to recover. And then when she was better, they got her back into school. They got her into the GEP. And then on her next uh, attempt to take her 10th grade exams that she had failed before, she passed all of them. So today, several years later, uh, Asha, is she's in the GEP. She's in 12th grade. She lives in our dormitory. She's, she's doing well. She's happy. She tells our staff that the GEP is like uh, a new extended family for her. So the GEP is changing the lives of many uh, girls and young women in Bangladesh, like Asha, Brishti, and Shanti. And as these girls' and young women's lives change, that has a wider impact on their community and their society. So I love this quote by Malala Yousafzai, girls should learn history and make it. And GEP girls are making history. So many of them are becoming the first girls and young women from their communities to go on to college, graduate college, earn a higher education. And as they do so, this affects uh, the, the view that people have of girls and women in their community. They become 
inspiring examples to others of what girls and women can do when they have the opportunity uh, to stay in school. All of this is like elevating the status of girls and women. Parents are realizing my daughters are not less than my sons, or they're realizing what a valuable asset it is to have an educated daughter in their family and in their community. And if I can just share uh, briefly why this work is also personal to me. So um, my father passed away about five years ago. And he had his positive qualities, but he was also just a classic male chauvinist. And he regarded himself to be better than all women simply because he was a man. And he wielded this really badly. Like he was, he treated my mom and my sisters and, and some other women really terribly and abusively. And I realize now that it was his own insecurities or emotional wounds or brokenness, whatever it was, that caused him to feel like I have to push other people down and prop myself up above them. Um, but one of the reasons why I work for Speak Up and one of the reasons why I love and promote and support the GEP is that I want a different legacy than my dad's. Like, I want to use whatever power, privilege, opportunity that I have, not to push other people down like he did, but to raise them up, especially people who are pushed down by other people in power, especially people who are vulnerable, especially those who are marginalized in their society. I want to work toward a world in which everybody has the same opportunity to flourish. And I know that so many other people want that too. And Speak Up's work, it's one small part of that big and beautiful vision uh, for the world. So there's a proverb from Africa that says, if you see a good fight, join it. The fight in Ukraine, that's, that's not a good fight. But Speak Up's work is a good fight. And if you would like to, you can join it. So my phone, my email, our website, it's up on the slide. So whether you're here in person or watching this on the live stream, if you would like to hear more about Speak Up or how you can participate in what, you're doing, in what we're doing, how you could join our work, uh, please do reach out to me. Send me a text. Send me an email. Uh, I'd love to have a conversation with you. If you'd like, you could check out our website and learn more about Speak Up there. And um, if you would like to... oh. Are we missing the last slide? There it is. Um, if you would like to do so, you can also sponsor the education of one of the girls in our GEP. So most of our funding, most of our work, it's funded by individual people who give $35 monthly to sponsor one of the girls in our program. And that covers the entire educational costs of one of the girls in the GEP. Uh, and so many of our sponsors say that their sponsorship contribution is just a reflection of their desire to make the world a better place for one vulnerable person. Uh, if you do sponsor, you would get the name, the photo, other information about the girl you're sponsoring. You can write and receive letters, uh, build a personal connection uh, with her. So if you'd like to do that, you can go on the website and set up a sponsorship there. So thank you all so much for listening, hearing about the work that we're doing, and thank you so much for caring about these girls and young women. I appreciate you very much.
David, thank you so much. Um, we're going to invite Troy up. Um, we're going to have a Q&A time right now. Um, and so here, here's my thing. So yeah, I mean, this is the second time I've heard David um, share uh, just what Speak Up for the Poor is doing. And I'm just, just so amazed. In such a short amount of time, uh, they have made such a huge impact. I mean, there's over a thousand people now, uh, girls involved in this. And uh, I mean, what did you say? That's only been 10 years? or It's been 10 years since 10 2012. Years. Okay, it's only been 10 years. And I know that this is going to expand more and just the beautiful opportunities these um, young girls can have. And, you know, I, I know that sometimes uh, poverty and just thinking about the vulnerable seems like, you know, it's like deer in the headlights, right? The, the problem is so huge that we feel like we can't do anything. We're just stunned by the enormity of the problem and we feel immobile. But what um, organizations like Speak Up for the Poor are doing is it's helping us to see that we can take part. We can, like, do something you know, good, and I know that some people here are already um, sponsors of some of the children, and I'm so grateful for that. And so we would encourage you, you know, um, to think about it, to pray about this. But right now, we do have Troy and David um, just to um, here to help a answer any questions. And so if you have a question, raise your hand, and I'll hand you the mic. Hi, um, I was just wondering if we choose to sponsor a girl, do we, can we communicate with them, like send letters, or is it just um, financial? You can. You can. You can write letters back and forth with the, the girl that you sponsor. You can send pictures to her. Those are all delivered uh, to the girl in Bangladesh. And then the girls in the program write letters to their sponsors also, about once a year. It's a, it's a big production to, to get all these letters written in Bangladesh and send them to the U.S. and send them out. But at least once a year, you, uh, sponsors receive letters as well from the girl they sponsor. So my question, first I just want to say I think it's amazing the work that you guys are doing through this organization. How, I, what struck me the most was not only are you saving or changing the trajectory of these girls' lives, but their families and mm -hmm. I was just taken aback by how uh, you were able to change, you know, a mindset that's been around for hundreds of years. How did you do that? How did you change, convince the parents, well, maybe not so much the, the mother, but the father, um, how did you change their minds to allow their, their daughters to continue their education and not become child brides? Yeah, it's a, a great question. So we're obviously not there yet, and there's like many, many decades to go to get rid of child marriage and kind of associated things. Um, girls, like any kid anywhere in the world, even if they don't necessarily know what it means to be a nurse or a doctor or a teacher, they're naturally ambitious or at least hopeful. So like when we would start, when I first went there, I would ask uh, girls like what your dream is, and they wouldn't know even how to answer because they weren't even conditioned like I was as a kid. Oh, what you want to be? I want to be an astronaut, U.S. president, right? They don't even think of that. But, um, so, but once they have given an opportunity and they, they see that they have a path, the girls themselves are like, yeah, I want, I'd rather be a teacher than get married when I'm 14. So it's pretty easy sell for the girls. The moms, who most of them, they themselves were married quite young, 
they're very supportive, even if their education ended at sixth or seventh or eighth grade. So moms are generally supportive, and they don't have a sophisticated understanding, but they kind of like take the girl's hand and give her and say, take her and do something. And I say, well, I'm not taking her, but she can join our program, and together we will help her, but she has to stay with you. And the, the dads are a mix. Our program is about 50% Hindu, 50% Muslim. And either religion, either background, the dads are generally around the same kind of thinking that most of their daughters will be married younger for very cultural reasons and religious or poverty reasons. But if you can, like, it's kind of case by case, but convince people and they can see a picture of what their daughter, like they was saying, what she actually can do in a positive sense for the family, that she'll marry a guy that actually has salary, you know, so we can appeal to 20 different reasons, you know, and say like, so when your little hut, when it falls down, would you rather that your son-in-law is a poor rickshaw driver or he himself was a teacher with a salary so he can fix your roof? And the dad looks, I go, would you like, or we bring the girls who are now nurses and say, this nurse now makes $200 a month and all the men make 100, 150 bucks a month maximum. Would you like your daughter? to be like employed like this, right? And I'll say, Elbristi, like, what are you doing with your salary? She says, oh, you know, uncle, I'm helping my family. Hmm. Wouldn't you like your daughter to be in this situation? So you have to show positive examples, you know, but once you do that, it kind of will build on itself. So like any one case, there's some that are, you know, dropping out still and some that are hardcore religious that won't listen to us, but it's an ongoing battle. But our idea is one day, it's not just talk about how terrible child marriage is, but presents a better option that then the child marriage one day will be kind of obsolete because it's like, why would anyone do that when there's something so much better? But it's a very ongoing process. I'm wondering if there are um, in these areas, many jobs available for women and young girls that go through the program. Yeah, the, um, that's like, you're quite insightful that that's like big picture thinking like, it's great to show this, throw out this vision, but what are they actually going to do? So the nursing girls or young women are generally guaranteed jobs because they're going to work for the hospital or the nursing program that they graduated from because Bangladesh needs nurses. In fact, years ago, part of our inspiration, we heard the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, who's a, a woman, said, oh, our poor country, we need 50,000 doctors, 100,000 teachers, 50,000 nurses, and talk about woe is me. And I thought, like, well, I know, like, 5,000 just myself, right? <laughs> so, like, if we educate them, we can help your country. So the girls are there. So thinking biggest picture, the what countries need, girls aren't the problem. The girls are the solution, right? If you need teachers and you need nurses and doctors and teachers and advocates and social workers, right? Like, we got them. Like, just, are you going to be stupid and marry them off or are you going to keep them in school? Those are, that's your future. Uh, at the same time, there are a lot of economic problems, right? So there aren't guaranteed jobs for people. We have even some of our staff like in their 20s, for 10 years, they're applying for government jobs, desperate to get that, because that's job security for 30 years. But we employ many of our girls, the young women in college are our teachers, right? I'd say it's like our own little, um, like the best version of, uh, not a Ponzi scheme, but a positive, like we keep the money inside <laughs> by hiring our girls to teach the younger girls, and then they'll be the teachers. So we hire some of them, giving them the first job 
because it is hard to get a teaching job. The odds are kind of tough. So some of our girls are our young staff now. Um, some of them, the nurses all have guaranteed jobs. Some of them will finish college and then get married and might not have a job, or a very simple job might work for a few years and then start a family, which is fine, better than getting married at 14. But on the biggest picture, yeah, the economy is not great in Bangladesh, but just being educated to some degree will at least help you to get um, that first, uh, first job, even if it's not a real sophisticated one. But we're starting to place some of our graduates into other NGOs, into other nonprofit organizations, because they're the perfect, uh, the perfect young women to do the job. You don't need me running around the villages. I'm the uncle, but you need young women who come from those villages to do that work. So half of them we're going to hire ourselves in some way, yeah. Troy, I'm curious, what was it that inspired you to begin this work? Um, so I, I grew up in, in a bunch of different countries. My parents were teachers, and my dad an administrator in different countries. So I kind of, all my life, I kind of had a global vision and had traveled a lot and was interested in geopolitics and all kinds of justice issues and things. Um, maybe about 20 years ago, I, right before I started law school, I, wanted, I went to law school because I wanted to be an advocate for the poor in some way. But around that time, I started learning about uh, human trafficking and some of the, like, commercial sexual exploitation, those kind of issues. And I spent a few summers in India and Thailand volunteering with groups that were helping get girls out of brothels. And I didn't have any skills, but, I mean, frankly, I looked like a sex tourist, because a lot of white American or German or British guys go to these other countries and go into these brothels. So I was an undercover sex tourist, basically getting evidence on um, underage girls being prostituted in Thailand and Cambodia and India. And it disturbed me like so deeply that kind of like the verse you're saying, like Jesus seeing the masses, they're harassed and helpless. And for me, I kind of saw these things and my heart was broken. My mind was thrilled with, like, this is a global issue that I can do something about. But I also knew, like, oh, dang, this is going to change my life. Because I saw things, like, I went into these brothels. Like, it was me and, like, girls sitting this far away, little 10- or 12-year-old girls for sale. And it was, so, it was so disturbing to me that I kind of, like, cemented to me that I wanted to do something. It took a while to figure out exactly what, like, because we do more of the prevention side of things now. We do some of the legal intervention, which is kind of what I started wanting to do. But um, in brief, the genesis of Speak Up was me seeing those horrible things and thinking, I need to do something about it. Thank you. Uh, so with the GEP, is that something that you created or that you uh, combined with another group to create that curriculum and, and the whole GEP thing? Yeah, we, we just started it. So, you know, like there's, there's, yeah, we just started it. And people, once things get big and sophisticated, you know, they're like, oh, you have this awesome stuff. Like, you have no idea. Like, we just started. Like, how are we going to keep these... We started with 20 girls, and then the 21st girl joined us. These 21 girls, how are we going to keep them in school? And we need a program that educates girls, oh, girls' education program. Like, the name's not that sophisticated, right? So <laughs> we just, yeah, we kind of you make up things as you go along. Like, so that when you start something new, it's often like that. Like, we need a dorm. 
I don't know, should we get that building or that building? And we kind of can do whatever we want. And I remember signing the contract for this big five-story building the first time. And we only had like 20 girls to move in. Now we have 130 between these two dorm buildings. But I was like nervous. Oh, are we going to have enough girls in this dorm? Is it a waste of money, all this empty space? But you just kind of figure it out as you go along. And then later you sound like an expert. But it's all, <laughs> yeah, we just creating it from scratch. And the follow-up is a uh, picture showed them holding up the folder, and it said core values, but I couldn't see what was under that. Do you, what are the core values? Yeah, so the, the three things, we have the girls, and they do it, um, they, they say on one hand, it's hard work. Because we say no matter what, um, no matter what um, you get, you receive, like they receive all they need to stay in school, you're going to have to work hard, right? The other side, we say your other hand is service, right? Because the purpose of our program is not to have you become a doctor and then you move to England and you forget about poor Bangladesh. We want to empower you for you and your family, but also that you will serve people. But then we say, what's between your hand and the most important thing is how you think. So it says, it says in there some version of self-confidence or self-belief. They say, autobishash, meaning self-confidence. So you say the most important is if you believe and have a vision, then you can achieve that. So that's what the three things are listed on there. Uh, so all these girls are kind of reinvesting in their communities. Do you have like a backlog of people who want to join the program? Or are you still kind of reaching out? And then are you seeing like the culture change? So are there like communities of people where they stop doing all these child brides and things like that? Yeah, so we're working in, like Dave said, 35 villages and slums. Bangladesh has like 30,000 to 50,000 villages, depending on how you count, if this is one or two villages. So... We're just scratching the services, but in the area where we're working, those villages have significant reduction, where it would be 80, 90% of the girls who would get married before 18, or maybe one out of, two out of 100 would finish high school. Like, this whole village, every girl is in our program, and like 60, 70% are finishing high school. So in the villages where we work, there is uh, tremendous change. Um, it's depends how you look at it. Like, are we changing Bangladesh? Not quite, but we're changing this area, and in that way having some success. What was the first, the very first part of your question? Oh, yeah, there's, like, we have an unlimited, we call it the friends list, right? It is the waiting list. It's unlimited. So all the fourth and fifth grade girls know that they officially can join our program in the sixth grade. So we just had, what, how many girls join? Two hundred and seventy-nine. Two hundred and seventy-nine girls joined in January, mostly sixth graders, sixth, seventh, eighth graders. All the fourth and fifth graders are on the list, knowing they can officially join next January when the school year starts again. But we have hundreds of girls from little ones all the way up there on the waiting list. That it's all just a numbers game that we have to decide how many. Because once they commit, once they join the program, we commit that we'll support them through university. So we have an unlimited list, and we don't have to advertise, right? It's just like. The girl will tell her friends, yeah, I got these cool notebooks, I'm in this program, I'm going to go to nursing school, and then the other friends just come. So any meeting we have is an advertisement for other village girls to come. So it's unlimited free advertising because the girls will tell their friends when they're having a good experience. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have unlimited time here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we maybe two more questions, and they're already accounted for, one here and one there. And so...
Um, how do you guys make up for um, language difference? Are you guys fluent um, in the language that they speak in Bangladesh, and are they learning English there? Should I got that? So uh, my Bangla is not very good. Um, we have, you didn't see in the picture, you saw the pictures of all the girls and young women in our program. We have a big staff that's all Bangladeshi, right? So I'm there most of the time, and I'm leading the charge, but really I'm leading the charge by helping equip and empower our team. We have like 60 teachers, part-time teachers, about 25, 28 full-time staff, everything from security guards, right, at our dorm to keep the boys away, to cooks, to dorm mothers, to our full-time um, advocates and social workers and field staff, all Bangladeshi. So increasingly, that's um, increasingly becoming more and more women. So in the early days, it was harder to ha find women because that's kind of the vicious cycle, right? Now we have young women that we're hiring. So our staff is completely Bangladeshi, Christian, Muslim, and Hindu. So it's all, everything is done in Bangla. I talk to the girls half Bangla, half English. It helps them with their English, and they do back with me, helping me with my Bangla. But it's all totally locally run, and they kind of—they know I'm the boss, but I'm like the uncle, and it's a Bangladeshi team. Okay, one more. There's one over here, yeah. And we can stick around after if you have other questions that don't get answered um, here. I'm just curious about um, how. How's that finance as far as the, as, well, here to become a nurse, it's costly. And I'm wondering if it's, is that the same there or how does that work? Yes. So the, the young women in our program that go to nursing school, most of them are going to private nursing school, but it's like $1,000 a year. But to a dad that's making 100 bucks a month, it's like, well, that's a joke. I wouldn't like... It's like paying cash for going to Harvard. Like, who's going to pay 100000 a year? Impossible. So, but we, our scholarships, and um, we get scholarships for the girls. We give them a stipend. Um, they stay in our dorm, so they get room and board for free. Um, girls going to other colleges, it's like going to a state school, but like, like maybe what community college was 50 years ago, like $3 a quarter. So really, for them, the main expense is just room and board and maybe some transportation. So they know, though, when they're young, if you finish 12th grade, and you get admitted to a university or college, nursing school, anywhere in Bangladesh, you'll get a stipend to get you through college. So they get that and free room and board, and that's enough. There's a few cases that things might be a little more expensive for a few of the private schools, but we manage that. But 99% of them, it's, the school itself is really inexpensive. It's just the room and board is the issue, which is why we have a dorm, and probably in the future, 10 years from now, we'll probably have dorms in five cities around Bangladesh because that's the main the main obstacle. Even if you finish high school, which is unlikely without intervention, the main next obstacle is to have room and board so you can go to college. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. So I, I would, you know, this uh, is just so powerful and moving. And you, you see the challenge up there. It's $35 a month. I, I want you right now just to pause and think about the last $35 you spent. Think about how you spent it. I mean, it could be for good things, right, or just random things. But um, in my mind, as I was thinking about this, I know that that $35 was spent and gone. And it didn't really count for the future. Um, there's an opportunity to help 
affect the life of not just one girl, but her whole family and also the tra trajectory of Bangladesh. They need more nurses. Um, and so the, the economics here is not just about one person, but it's about trying to help just the greater community, the, the country. Um, and then also, I think, you know, in invitations like this, it, it helps um, save us. Um, because a lot of times we become so insulated with our own self-needs that we forget that God has called us to um, be about other people. Um, what does it mean for us to practice the spiritual discipline of love so that we no longer become um, self-insulated, only caring for ourselves? And so when we participate in things like this, it enlarges our capacity to love, to be more like God. And so this is an invitation for our church to consider, to pray, um, and just to like, just see the kingdom of God unfold and, and Jesus' heart to like, care for those who are most vulnerable. And so I want to thank uh, both of you just for like, just all that you do. I mean, this is such incredible work, and we're so excited that you guys can be here and that we can, um, you know, um, um, uh, help elevate the work that's going on here. But if you can join me now as uh, I, I pray for, speak up for the poor. God, thank you for just this amazing work. In 10 years, um, God, it's evident that a seed that was planted is, is just like flourishing. And we pray, God, that um, a lot of these girls would um, continue on in their education and that more girls would come in and that um, finances would not impede impede opportunities. And so, God, whatever part we can take as a church, help us to participate. But God, um, do um, your work and speak up for the poor and then so much other good um, nonprofits and ministries that are happening around the world, including in Long Beach. And so, again, God, just um, help us to be um, just mindful, mindful of the things that you care about. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And here, I'll call Barb. Thank you. We hope this teaching has encouraged and challenged you. We always have more resources available at our website, lbcf.org. And wherever you are and wherever you're listening, we pray you be filled with grace to learn to live in love like Jesus.